you know, when I was younger, even though I believed that, I felt impatient, you know. I mean, changing society through education is going to take so long. Mm -hmm. But now that I am older and, you know, 20 years of supervising uh, PhDs and master's theses and even, you know, the undergrad students are serving on the committees of uh, doctoral students and master's students and so on, you can have a tremendous impact over a 20, 30, 40-year career. I mean, I never imagined I would have students all over the country who are themselves, you know, publishing, presenting papers and teaching hundreds of students a year Mm. heterodox economics. Welcome to Activist MMT, a podcast about nonviolent MMT direct activism, introducing modern monetary theory to the world and conversations about learning MMT together. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today is part three of my five-part conversation with one of MMT's original developers, Matthew Forstatter. Today, Matt and I start with a light-hearted conversation about music, parenting, Twitter, and the book club his two sons gave him for his birthday this year. He then proceeds to tell many stories from the history of heterodox economics, his own career, and his role in the early history of MMT. Along with several other UMKCers and MMTers, Matt was recognized by a 2015 Bloomberg article for properly predicting the euro currency would be a disaster. UMKC is one of the few universities in the world with a PhD program in economics through an MMT lens. With the assistance of Warren Mosler, the program was begun by Matt, Stephanie Kelton, Randall Ray, and others. Over the years, the program has resulted in hundreds of MMT-educated professors now teaching around the country. Matt also discusses The Economist, who is the subject of his own dissertation, Adolf Lowe. Lowe is a professor at the New School, and one of Lowe's students, Robert Heilbronner, later became Matt's own professor at the New School. Matt describes the early history of the New School, which was originally called the University in Exile which was created by a group of disaffected professors from Columbia University. In part four, Matt tells the full story of how his then undergraduate student, Pavlina Cherneva, became involved in the MMT project. But for now, let's get right back to my conversation with Matt Forstatter. You good? What was that music that you uh, have as part of your podcast, Jeff? Is is that something you played, or is no. that something you? Well, first, was that a guitar? You were just playing a guitar. Uh, yeah, I, I, I was just. This. <laughs> um, I've. Uh... That's cool. How long have you been playing? Um, well, you. You wrote or co-wrote one of the song parodies from the last conference. Is that right, or you just that, presented no, I, it? I, I forget. I uh, parody, you involved the parody of uh, a very model of a modern major general. I made into NMT. I I wrote I wrote it yeah. and I recorded it and I I sing one of the I sing one of the parts and I had my 
and my ten-year-old sings, or not sings. My ten-year-old uh, does right. the, the 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 spoken monologue, which right. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's great. I'm, I'm, right. I'm It's very nice of you. <laughs> it's a nice surprise to hear you mention that. Not at all. You know what? That got. You know, it's good. You know, everything at a conference can't have the same tone. You know what I mean? Like, and some stuff is uh, really serious, but, you know, it's good to have some moments of um, humor, uh, lighter, you know, fun. Sure. Got to have fun. Sure. Um, Sure. Anyway, yes, I mess around, you know, I'm not a serious musician, but I, I mess around uh, and also with my kids, likewise. That's great. How, how old are like, your kids? Uh, now they are 29 and 22, two boys. Wow. Two young men. That's, yeah. a, pretty big, that's a pretty big separation. Mine are uh, 10 and, uh, yeah. 11 and 14. Okay. Kind of a double-edged thing, but uh, the the like kind of interesting part about it that I you know never thought about before was that for the first seven years of my older son's life, he was kind of like an only child in a way. And then, you know, my younger guy was born, and they're extremely close to one another, by the way, uh, which is, yeah, always nice uh, to see. But then when Harris, the older one, went off to college, Raymond and I, yeah, he was kind of like an only, I mean, so I was able to... Oh, I see. A lot of quality years in with both of them, you know, one on one. In addition to having that time when we were all together, but yeah, they're extremely good friends with one another. And actually, for Father's Day, they sent me a book, and they also got the book themselves, and. We're having a, I guess, a, you know, book club or whatever. Like, nothing I ever needed to do, you know, like have a book club in order to, you know, read. I'm surrounded by books at home, in the office, everywhere. That's creative. Especially during this time, the older guy is in California. Yeah, I mean, it's been a while since we've seen him. In any case, it's a lot of fun. The 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 book is a really interesting book that they picked out as well. It's one of these things where it was written or it came out in 2017, but okay. so much of it is relevant to... Uh, our current time. Um, Hmm. A lot of it focuses on uh, issues of race. It's actually, it's called They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us by Hanif uh, Abdurraqib. And it turns out that the book is ostensibly a collection of uh, music reviews, but kind of like some of the other, you know, great critics, uh, they use a performance or an artistic piece as a kind of point of departure for discussing a lot of different issues in popular culture, social issues and political and so on. Mm. Um, yeah, but it's got a lot of um, sort of surprising aspects to it. 
So it's published by a, a very small press. I think it's called uh, $2 Radio. And uh-huh. it turns out that $2 Radio is a cafe slash bookstore slash performance space in Columbus, Ohio, huh. which is where Fabo Kaboob, you know, Denison University is just a little bit outside uh, sure. Columbus. Some references in the essays to Columbus and Ohio, and uh, so it's really kind of interesting. I, I, I never imagined that I would, I mean, now I've been in Kansas City for, you know, over over 20 years. Have you been to Kansas City? No. No, I haven't. Oh, so you didn't come to the first international I never heard MMT. Of, I never heard of MMT at the first one. I, I heard of, I right. never heard of MMT before February of 2018. So I, I went to the 2018 conference. Okay. And 2019 right. as well. Yeah, of course I went to the 2019. Right. I didn't know you, but I saw you at both of those. Right. Right. Well, I mean, we met at the last one, or, you know, we were involved in the same project. I know who you are. I see your name, you know, on the um, Facebook and Twitter and so on under your is it activist MMT or is there another yes. one as well? Or Yeah. I'm not sure. Uh, is there a, uh, like an MMT, is it like resources? Twitter? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's secondary. So, so I, Twitter is just a pain in the butt. So what I've I know. done, so what I've done is, is, and I'm actually going, I'm actually going to slowly abandon it. I mean, I'm not getting rid of the information. I'm just going to slowly transition it to a better form. I want it to be, my goal originally was it for be, it to be a permanent resource. So that means right. that, so that means that I'm going to recreate stuff as I update them. But that, but people who follow me, people who follow that account will get their feed just spammed with when I, when I recreate stuff. So. Right. If Twitter wasn't such a pain, I can handle that. I mean, I've, I've, I can handle that. I, I, you know, it's no problem. But I don't want people to be spammed. And then that means that people will mute me and they will stop following me. And, you know, so, but the bigger problem is, is that when you retweet something from another account, sometimes Twitter just simply hides that tweet from everybody. So the whole Ooh. thing is just a big, huge mess. So what I've done is I'm, I'm, I've just decided to slowly transition all that information to a website. Uh, and then as, and, and yeah, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not stressing over it. It might take like a good six months or something, but piece by piece, I'm going to slowly transition each major thread to a website and then it'll basically, you know, I'll grab out when it's finally done. I'll, I'll just get rid of it because just Twitter's a mess, but I have all the information backed up. And so that's, that's MNT resources is just a, it's just a repository for activist MNT, but um, but what? you asked me, but you asked me about the music. Um, so I've been doing, I've done like eight, actually I just, I'm about to, it's done. I just need to, to be approved and then we're going to release it. I just uh, interviewed at Black Lives Matter, uh, a friend who's in Black Lives Matter, who's a, a core person in Black Lives Matter, New Jersey and, and a, a, a rep, I forget the title for national as well. And so yes. we talked, we talked for two hours about George Floyd and, and, systemic yes. racism and and the performative yeah. changes and so on and oh. it was a it's a really great interview very i'm very happy how it turned out so that's with historically if you've heard of historically it, uh, on twitter it's historic underscore ly historically and basically mnt uh, mnt is you know i see it as the truth about economics and historically is the truth about history oh. so oh i've done oh, i have uh, this seen that it's good it's good it's a good website uh, it's, excuse me it's a good uh, podcast and, and Isha legal Isha Krishnaswamy uh, was moderated one of the panels at the conference. Um, okay. On, at the previous right. conference, and she that's her podcast. So I've done this is my eighth interview with them. So the music on that podcast, when I did my first interview for them, 
and I mixed it, and I, you know, she gave me right. the theme music and all. It was just such a thrill, <laughs> such a thrill to hear that theme music come in. It just is like, you know, so just a recording of a phone call, and then you put music at the beginning and the end. It just sounds so professional. <laughs> so yeah, right. So when I when I, I actually decided at the conference last year to create this podcast because I interviewed Sam Levy. And I was hoping that it would be released for like MNT podcast or for some other podcast would pick it up. And then halfway through the conference, I'm like, I might as well just do it. So he was my first interview for for activist MNT. And I contacted the guy who created that music for historically. And I said, can you create music for me? And it was expensive. It was 300 bucks, but Dude. I couldn't, I could not be happier <laughs> with how it turned Dude. out. It was just so it is just such, he, he, you know, I, I gave him ideas. I gave him some songs that are like particularly, you know, I like a lot and gave him my thoughts and, and he, you know, gave a couple of drafts and I gave him feedback and I, I'm a trained musician. I'm, I'm a trained singer. So like, hey. I think I gave him fe- feedback more, you know, detailed feedback than he was expecting. Um, I could not be happier with how it turned out. I just so thrilled with how it awesome. turned out. Yeah. And I guess, yeah. um, Riley, is that you? Maybe Riley? did you collaborate with him on the one from the conference, or you just? Both? Oh, Christian, Christian. No, uh, yeah. no, I, I didn't. Coll- well, I, I sang a little bit of harmony on his song, just a tiny, tiny. Bit. Oh, okay. So uh, yeah. I, yeah, well, but, but collaboration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I just tacked on some some harmony to it, which is very nice that he added it in. Um, uh, so. But no, uh, pre- pre- presenting both of those was, was, you know, obviously that was a lot. That was a lot of fun, and and recording recording my piece and uh, acquired it. It actually there were eight people in the choir. I mean, there's more people in the choir, but eight people that did it, and then I duplicated them. I, so I we recorded it twice, and then I put one pop, copy one of the choir in the left hand speaker and copy two of the choir in the right hand speaker. So um, yeah, no, it was a lot. Of, it was it was yeah, it's fun. It's fun. Well. Uh, before he wrote Soft Currency Economics, uh, Warren Mosler wrote a couple uh, little things. One was a play called What's Debt Got to Do With It? Uh, Because it must have been around the time when Tina Turner's song What's Love Got to Do With It, I suppose. Uh, was that early 90s or late 80s? But also, somewhere kind of early on, Warren had like a song. It was kind of hard. The music was kind of hard rock. And yeah, I mean, it wasn't sung by Warren, but uh, he wrote the words and then mm-hmm. I, I believe. So anyway, yeah, kind of funny. Uh, there was a I, I, there was a, a song by Warren Mosler posted on Twitter. Uh, I remember uh, I think you you pointed it out, and then Kristen was like, "Can we can you post it?" And I think Warren or whoever posted it, and it, okay. it's not really an MMT song, but it had something to do with like that kind of theme. Oh, okay, uh, yeah, I didn't really remember exactly, but I thought it was. Um, when I first met Warren, you know, and he was telling me about his different interests because he was inventing cars and, you know, he had uh, these other interests uh, besides uh, economics. And mm-hmm. um, one was psychology. And he had a kind of theory about psychology that, he considered to be for psychology what MMT is for economics. Like it, it basically was. This is my best recollection. Is uh, he compared two different types of thinking: linear and cyclical or circular. In any case, you know uh, it's funny you you. I think sent me a message saying you read that um, my role in like the group early on was 
the historian or something. Yeah, so, that's, uh, that's, that's a quote. Yeah, that's been said for some different reasons, and it's not completely untrue, but what I was going to say is that um, it, it wasn't my uh, excellent training and historical methods that resulted in that role for me. It was that it seemed like I was the only one who could actually remember things. <laughs> I mean, okay. you know, uh, Randy Ray always talks about how terrible his memory is. And you think he's joking, except in 1998, so before the Euro actually, it, it started January 1st, 1999, okay. um, when the member nations of the EMU fixed the exchange rates of their various currencies, so the French franc and the Italian lira, and then uh, when was it that they actually introduced a euro currency? But in effect, once they fixed the exchange rates, then francs and, and lira and German marks were just like so much, you know, nickel dimes and quarters or whatever. So now we know that, you know, Bloomberg had an article, for example, um, eight economists who saw the problems of the euro currency coming uh, mm -hmm. and you know, four were from UMKC and six huh. were, you know, what came to be known as MMT stuff. And shockingly, I was one of them. Really? Um, wow. What, yeah. was, what, what year was this? And I don't see how surprised you sound. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, so what, what year is the Bloomberg article around? Um, it was from when. Greece was in like the midst of its real. So what was that? Uh, maybe 2012-ish, or uh, I I don't remember exactly. But so the the, the Bloomberg article. It, so it has uh, Stephanie uh, Kelton, who you know probably uh, her was Stephanie Bell, uh, and uh, Randy Ray, myself, Win Godley, Charles Goodhart. Wow. Uh, who were two who collaborated uh, with our group, even if they didn't sign on, you know, 100%. You know, there are always some people who agreed with, say, one part of what we were saying. Like, say, they accepted you know, chartalism, tax-driven money theory, but they had some kind of issue with the job guarantee. That would be Goodhart. Um, okay. And you had, you know, people like uh, Phil Harvey from the National Jobs for All Coalition who were for a job guarantee but um, weren't sure about functional finance or... Yeah, I mean, one of the things that, you know, Warren Mosler was very adamant about, especially, you know, early on, is you never say something that you know to be untrue for reasons of political expediency. Oh, that's, and actually... That's that's like a yeah. learner. Learner. I think right. he just well, mentioned that on MMT, his most recent MMT podcast. It's like learner's law right. or something like that. They, right. So basically, so, instead of saying the debt is the debt is you know is just completely different than you think. Instead of saying that, you'll say something like, "Oh well, it's it could be higher." Right. Right. I mean, Learner talked about this, and in that little article, like I have you know, lessons from learner for today, and there's like 10 points or, you know, however many points there are, 
And, yeah. you know, that's just, one of them. Link in the description. And, you know, uh, Warren started calling that learner's law. I mean, because he agreed so much with that point made by Lerner. Right. You know, Lerner didn't call that learner's law. I mean, nobody else called it Lerner. Warren called that learner's law. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. Um, in, in any case, though, I think prime, there are many examples, unfortunately, but prime example is in the 1980s, uh, you had a Republican president, uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, for two terms, and George Bush for one term, and you had um, deficits, you know, much, much larger than ever in history, and um, this was after the, you know, Reagan tax cuts and the, the you know, Laffer curve. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but very vaguely, side economics. And, uh, unemployment know, causes run well, too low unemployment. No, 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 no. This is this is um, the, the, the Laffer curve says that you know you can cut tax rates, uh, uh, income tax rate, and it will induce economic right. growth so much that tax revenues will actually go up. You see? Trickle so, down economics. Because, That's trickle down. Yeah, I'm, I'm mixing right, it up with yeah, the... Yeah, uh, trickle down. I'm mixing it up with the... Side economics. Yeah, I'm yeah. mixing it up. What's the one with the name behind the Nehru? That's the one I'm thinking of. Right, you're, you're thinking of the Phelps curve. Yes, thank you. Yes, Phelps curve, yeah. So, so with the, yeah, Laffer curve, and ironically... Warren Mosler's the first self, you know, published uh, soft currency economics. Uh, mm -hmm. He thanks two or three economists, and one is uh, Laffer. Uh, really? Because, wow. Yeah, I mean, I don't. Soft currency economics is so far from. <laughs> So in any case, what happened is that the Democrats decided to score a few, you know, political brownie points because it always had been that the Republicans were, you know, the sound money and sound finance, right, fiscally responsible, and they would accuse the Democrats, you know, from the Kennedy tax cuts uh, to, you know, uh, it had a kind of some mild uh, Keynesian policies, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And where they would, you know, uh, run a deficit when the economy was in a downturn. And then the idea was that you would uh, run a surplus when the economy was in expansion and so the national debt wouldn't be going up over time or, you know, things like that. So mm -hmm. it was a little more common sense in that one of the just mind blowing, uh, things is this idea of, you know, a constitutional, uh, amendment to balance the budget every single calendar year and no. learner you know he he would say like what's the economic meaning of a 12 month period i mean huh. why not balance it in 6 months why not in 2 years why you know 1 year there's no reason unless maybe if you go back at one time the kind of agricultural cycles, you know, seasonal mm -hmm. kind of thing when agriculture was, you know, the predominant you know, sector of the economy or something. But other than that, right. right, what would be an economically meaningful length of time? And the idea was that over the business cycle, right, if, if 
you know, such a thing. That was the, um, in the early 60s, you had the, you know, most famous sort of uh, neoclassical Keynesians like Paul Samuelson, James Tobin, and people like that, people with similar, uh, working a similar framework who are, you know, not as well known. But, I mean, they would use the term functional finance, uh, but they really were describing what now we call more of a deficit dove position, right? There were aspects of it, but in any case, the Democrats decided to call the Republicans fiscally irresponsible for running up these deficits. And once you do that, then the next time that the economy is in a downturn, you either have to uh, expose yourself as a hypocrite because before you were complaining about deficits and now you're going to, right? Or stay consistent, have to become sound finance, sound money, uh, uh, deficit hawk, or maybe deficit dove, but, you know. So, I mean, uh, by the time we get to uh, Bill Clinton and Al Gore running against George W. Bush um, in uh, 2000, right? They're debating what to do with the surplus. And um, CFEP, Center for Full Employment and Price Stability, right, the the first institute that we we started devoted to these ideas and so on, uh, we had a, a great article, Abolish the Surplus. I mean, yeah, it was a a lot of good work. I mean, you know, of course, you had Bill Mitchell in Australia and somebody like Martin Watts, who has been working, you know, together with Bill and the Center for Employment and Equity for, you know, many, many years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and has really contributed a lot in, uh, as well. So you had them doing things in, in Australia, but in terms of uh, here, you know, it was Randy Ray, Stephanie Bell, now Kelton, uh, myself, uh, Pavlina. You know, you had Warren Mosler uh, doing his thing in Florida at that time. Uh, you know, you didn't have many more people than that at the beginning. And so everything was DIY. I mean, we didn't have uh, any support staff or, you know, administrative assistants or whatever. Now, when we when we came to UMKC, then we started to have students that, you know, worked together with us and – now, you know, many of them are, you know, very well-known contributors uh, in heterodox economics as uh, professors or, you know, uh, certainly, you know, in terms of their scholarship, uh, you know, Eric Tremoyne, uh, Pavlina, of course, eventually got her a PhD with us and Fadal Kaboob and... I mean, Yeva, uh, Narcissian, and I mean, you just go on and on and on, and it is uh, very powerful. I forget if we were talking about this the other day, so, you know, I always believed that education was one of the greatest uh, potential contributors to progressive change, nonviolent. But, you know, when I was younger, even though I believed that, I felt impatient, you know. I mean, changing society through 
education is going to take so long. Mm-hmm. But now that I am older and, you know, 20 years of supervising uh, PhDs and master's theses and even, you know, the undergrad students are serving on the committees of uh, doctoral students and master's students and so on, you can have a tremendous impact over a 20, 30, 40-year career. I mean, I never imagined I would have students all over the country who are themselves, you know, publishing, presenting papers and teaching hundreds of students a year Mm. heterodox economics. I mean, so it is very rare in heterodox economics to uh, have a PhD program. Um, If you include liberal arts schools or four-year you know, undergrad schools, like even state schools or whatever, that just have undergrad programs or maybe they have a master's program, right, but no doctoral program, then Mm -hmm. there's a lot more heterodox or at least sometimes people might call pluralistic in that it includes both heterodox and mainstream and a live and let live uh, environment, then there's a, a lot more of those departments and programs. But as soon as you say, well, heterodox departments at PhD granting universities, then it drops to, you know, fiber or so, you know, in the country and there's not even very many more anywhere in the rest of the world. I mean, like we were talking about the last time Fred Lee's uh, emphasis on, you know, discrimination against people with heterodox ideas is very, very real thing. Like even at Gettysburg College, okay, so it's a four-year undergrad. It's not a top 50, it might be in the next U.S. News and World Report college rankings or whatever it is, right? Yeah. Um, And the older generation, like my senior faculty when I was there in the early 90s, they did not have to publish to get tenure. Those were considered in those days teaching schools and they still exist. There's nothing wrong with them uh, in any way, but the things changed. So, you know, I had to publish if I was going to get tenure there. Now, I didn't have to, you know, publish everything in top place journals and I didn't have to publish, you know, 15 journal articles a year or anything like that. Right. Um, but what what happened is even at a place like Gettysburg, one of my students in their intermediate microeconomics class, a different professor was was teaching, a mainstream professor. The student asked, you know, a question that the professor found kind of insulting that, you know, more or less the neoclassical economics is just a confused mess. And so I had to have a meeting of myself and two faculty with the chair of the department who was my mentor, Derek Gondwe, the the African political economist who I mentioned, you know, previously, he he was, you know, a wonderful mentor and friend to me and did everything he could to protect me. But (laughs) it was like 
to me, so ridiculous because, you know, you know what, where do we think we are? I mean, uh, this, this isn't exactly, you know, Princeton or something. You know, let's put it in perspective. So when I finished my Ph.D., uh, it was 1996. So because I had spent the first three years of my tenure track time working on my dissertation, I only had one or two publications, and I thought I applied for some research leaves where I could get off from teaching and just focus on my research. And I applied to the Levy Institute, Levy Economics Institute, so I was actually on leave from Gettysburg from 1997 to 1999. And mm. first I had a one-year research leave, and then it got extended to two years. Uh, Randy Ray had the same thing with the University of Denver. Then both Denver and Gettysburg said, to Denver, to Randy, and, and Gettysburg, to me, you know, you either have to come back or there's no more extension of uh, of leaves. So I don't know if you saw, because you mentioned this, you know, me being described as the group's historian. Uh, Randy has a, uh, I, I think it's a working paper, uh, called the Kansas City School of Economics I, or something. Yeah, I just read it a few yeah. days ago. I just read it a few right, days ago. Right, me too. So it's very enlightening uh, on a lot of things, although, like I say, some of the you know unimportant, really, details are not exactly right. But, but uh-huh. it, the important stuff... You know, like the theory is, is all good. And so I view the Kansas City School of Economics or Kansas City School of Political Economy as just another term for modern money theory. Uh, the Kansas City approach is broader it's a certain style of approach to heterodox political economy. For example, I had mentioned the importance and uniqueness of UMKC's interdisciplinary doctoral program. So the interdisciplinarity would be, for myself, one characteristic of the you know, the Kansas City School or whatever. And then Fred Lee and um, Randy Ray, they both uh, had sort of, in terms of their influences, one foot in post-Keynesian, one foot in institutionalist, sort of American institutionalist uh, tradition mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and a healthy respect for Marx as well. And so I don't know if you uh, know Jim Sturgeon. He I've heard the name. was the professor at UMKC who, who brought the center and Randy and myself Stephanie, Fred, uh, you know, to the department. It was his, uh, along with um, the dean at that time, but in terms of the vision of of economics, I mean, UMKC itself had been uh, kind of a half-and-half department, and we replaced mainstream people and did our best not to hire any neoclassical people. And you could say, since Fred would compare, so I was in 
exactly uh, comfortable with, but I, I got the point. He would compare, you know, discrimination against heterodox economics to, you know, racism, you know, is refusing to publish neoclassical articles in my journal, so-called reverse racism. Uh, There's some uh, pluralist, uh, I guess, folks who see excluding neoclassical, you know, like, I mean, I don't want to hire... I mean, there are hundreds and thousands of departments or, or uh, faculty positions that are solely for neoclassical economists. They would not consider a heterodox person in a million years. Our work is not even considered to be economics, we talked about, you know, or in the journals and so on. By the way, I also don't... I'm old enough uh, to remember the... What was it? Alan Bakke? Uh, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but this was a a white guy who didn't uh, get into medical school and accused, you know, whatever school it was of some type of reverse racism or reverse discrimination. You know, let me just make a brief point on this. Why, of course, you know, I mean, nobody is is for any mistreatment of, of anyone, but there is a difference between a uh, authoritarian nationalism and liberatory nationalism. Like, if you are a member of the more privileged and the oppressor group, then uh, patriotic or nationalist is a very different thing than if you are a member of the oppressed group that is fighting for freedom, right? Those are two different things. And so, yeah. So anyway, um, sometimes people, they would think that, well, you know, Warren Mosler back in the 90s, uh, he's this you know, rich guy, and basically he got, you know, a few professors to, like, sell their souls, you know, to the devil or whatever. Like, like basically, we're espousing these theories just because, you know, Warren Moses was paying us or something. So, you know, I think you do uh, get a sense in Randy's piece on the Kansas City School, like how his work earlier uh, in working endogenous money theory and post-Keynesian economics, that it it was very much a a quite natural development um, to, you know, work on uh, what came to be known as MMT. And for myself, I wrote my doctoral dissertation, which was, you know, before MMT, on the work of an economist named Adolf Lowe, L-O-W-E, who's, you know, not a famous figure, which is why it's a good person you know, to do research on. And Adolf Lowe happened to be Robert Heilbronner's teacher and mentor. My So he was the teacher of my teacher. 
and he was a professor at the new school, like Kyle Bronner, and Kyle Bronner got his PhD from the new school, then became a professor at the new school, and then, so it was a very new school thing for me to do, except that no one had ever patient on adults. Well, I found out, you know, from Kyle Bronner, so in any case, there were some people who worked on uh, one aspect of Lowe's work that dealt with structural and technological change and mm-hmm. structural, what you call structural analysis. Mm-hmm. And uh, a, a lot of those uh, folks actually were Germans, uh, like um, Harold Hagemann, Heinz Kurtz, because Lowe lived to age 103, and he was born and lived the first 40 years of his life in Germany, and then he was among the first social scientists to be dismissed uh, by Hitler after the Nazis came into power in 1933, and... So shortly thereafter, Lowe and his family uh, left Germany. They There was a brief stop in Switzerland, but they settled for seven or eight years in Manchester, England. Uh, Lowe had a position at the University of Manchester, uh, but in 1940, I mean, he was going to be interned as a, as a resident alien or whatever because, you know, obviously World War II was starting and, you know, Germany was bombing uh, England and, and Lowe was from, from Germany. In any case, he moved to the new school and the graduate faculty of political and social science, which originally was called the University in Exile. The new school was founded as the first continuing education, Institute of Higher Education. In fact, even when I went there, all required courses started six o'clock or later in the evening so that working people could, you know, pursue their coursework and their interests. It was actually founded by a group of professors from Columbia University uh, who uh, were upset for what they felt at Columbia was a lack of academic freedom. And so John Dewey, famous educational philosopher and Oh, sure. um, Dewey um, Yeah, Thorsten Veblen, the institutionalist economist, uh, was one of the early faculty members. Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois also taught courses at the new school in the, these early days and so on. But then the president of the new school in the early... 1930s, Alvin Johnson, actually he was himself an institutionalist economist, he was the the president of the New School, he was running into these famous continental European scholars on the streets of New York, and he'd ask, you know, what they're doing, and basically they were saying, well, uh, I'm working at a bank, or I'm, uh, and so he brought uh, initially a group of eight, I think it was, um, faculty, all who were exiled for political opposition to fascism from Germany and Italy, and it was called the University in Exile. The group was dominated by economists many of whom were Adolf Lowe's former 
kind of collaborators, junior colleagues, even former students. So Lowe is, has been described as kind of the spiritus rector of, you know, the uh, University of Exile and the name was changed to the Graduate Faculty of Political and Social Science uh, after the end of, you know, the Second World War. So there had been some work done on Adolf Lowe's more technical contributions to growth theory and business cycle theory, but I wanted to focus on his methodological contributions and how his methodological contributions fit in with, you know, the work I just mentioned on growth and cycles, structural analysis, but also his ideas concerning political philosophy, uh, because he had been a professor of economics. Today is part three of my five-part conversation with one of MMT's original developers, Matthew Forstatter. Today, Matt and I start with a light-hearted conversation about music, parenting, Twitter, and the book club his two sons gave him for his birthday this year. He then proceeds to tell many stories from the history of heterodox economics, his own career, and his role in the early history of MMT. Along with several other UMKCers and MMTers, Matt was recognized by a 2015 Bloomberg article for properly predicting the euro currency would be a disaster. UMKC is one of the few universities in the world with a PhD program in economics through an MMT lens. 
With the assistance of Warren Mosler, the program was begun by Matt, Stephanie Kelton, Randall Ray, and others. Over the years, the program has resulted in hundreds of MMT-educated professors now teaching around the country. Matt also discusses The Economist, who is the subject of his own dissertation, Adolf Lowe. Lowe is a professor at the New School, and one of Lowe's students, Robert Heilbronner, later became Matt's own professor at the New School. Matt describes the early history of the New School, which was originally called the University in Exile, which was created by a group of disaffected professors from Columbia University. In part four, Matt tells the full story of how his then undergraduate student Pavlina Cherneva became involved in the MMT project. But for now, let's get right back to my conversation with Matt Forstatter. <laughs> 